HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to The Line here on Heritage Radio. I'm your host, Eli Sussman, co-owner and co-chef of Samisa Restaurant in Brooklyn. Today on the show, my guest is Chef Daniel Holzman. He started his professional cooking career at the age of 15. He attended the Culinary Institute of America and has worked at many top West Coast restaurants. In 2010, Daniel returned to his hometown of New York to open the meatball shop with his good friend Michael Chernow. They now have six locations in the meatball shop with a seventh on the way that we'll probably talk about today. Daniel has appeared on Good Morning America, The Today Show, and The Tonight Show, and he has had his work published in Savour and The New York Times, among other publications. Daniel, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Well, how's my radio voice? Pretty good. Is it sexy? Because I just woke up. Drop it like two octaves. In the, octaves. Yeah, there you go. Barry White style? Yeah. <laughs> there is a line that is always... Is the bell for because I said sexy? I don't know what that Every bell is for. Every time I say sexy. <laughs> <laughs> must be the sexy bell. There is a line that's that's always mentioned about you in articles, and it's about your early start. It's this... The, the 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 sort of myth is that when you were 15, you went to La Bernadette and you started cooking there. And uh, obviously, Eric, Eric Repair, the, the famed chef running La Bernadette. And then you went on to CIA with a full scholarship from the James Beard Foundation. So that's a lot to kind of unpack right there. I want to start right there. How did you end up in a kitchen at 15? Uh, and how did you end up at La Bernadette, one of the top restaurants in the world, uh, being able to even get your foot in the door? Um, first of all, you said there's a myth about you, which is great. That's the first time there's ever been a myth about about me, I think. And I'm really, 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 that's that was a goal, so I can check that <laughs> off the list. Um, a mythical creature. The my I was working at a restaurant called, where was I? Um... Samalitas? No, the Candle Cafe, which is still there, and I just ate there this week. In Manhattan. Week. 
Yeah. On uh, Third Avenue and and something in the Upper East Side, and they've got another one. It's a vegan restaurant. I was a delivery boy. Actually, I was a delivery boy there with Michael Chernow. Um, we were in high school together, and we were working in that in that restaurant to make some dough. And Mike was very cool. I think he wasn't just selling vegan food, but we'll leave that for another episode. Although, if you want to ask me about it, I, I'll be forthcoming. I mean, he had a bike and he had the addresses, he so did. he was already he he had to he have was, the game down. You know, vegan veganism, you know, <laughs> spawned a lot of great ideas. Yeah. So. Uh, my friend Natalie, her father was the maitre d of Le Bernardin, and she was my best friend. I was madly in love with her. She was the most beautiful girl she, at the time. She was probably like 14 or 15. So now looking back, I think she's grown into a really beautiful woman. Um, and her father or her mother kind of like discovered me in this restaurant working in the kitchen because I was obsessed with the kitchen. Because the people in the kitchen were so cool. They were like tattooed and there was fire involved. They got all the respect. And so um, her father seeing me in the kitchen, you know, was inspired to bring me into the restaurant. He got me an interview with Eric. And I remember I went after school and I showed up. It was like 3.15 and he showed up at like 3.30 and he goes, you know, you are lucky that uh, um, I was taking an haircut because you are late and otherwise you would be fired. And I was like, I'm <laughs> uh, like 14 years old. I don't, yes, sir. Yeah. And he was like, but uh, I see something in you. You'll remind me of me. So you are hired. And I was like, this is amazing. Uh, and I got to work there. It was really incredible. And what do your parents think of you picking up a very high stress job when you're in high school? Did they think that it was cute? Were they against it? You know, what are the vibes there? I come from a very like, I don't know, spiritually woke hippie family where, I don't want to say hippie, they're their own class of kind of like strange Jewish anxiety riddled adult kind of humans. But um, my mother was very supportive. She worked at night and my brother was five years older. He was away. My father um, and my mother had split up. So we, we had a very positive relationship amongst everybody. But, you know, I was really alone and it was an opportunity to be around people. And I was driven to pay rent and make money and do whatever I wanted, which was great. Were you living at that time on the Upper West or Upper uh, East upper Side? Upper East, yeah, 83rd Street and With first. your mom? Oh, yeah. Okay, so... Still. You, <laughs> still in the basement. Still with my mom. <laughs> so you go to school and then you shoot right over to Laberna Den? How does that work? You work one day a week? Yeah, I worked What's... Wednesdays after school mm-hmm. in the beginning and summers. And then, you know, and I did that for three years or so. And then when I graduated high school, I started working there full time. And at the way beginning. And on weekends, I guess. Did they treat you like a mascot? Were they trying to like push you to quit? Were they, did, how did you earn the respect of them? Like, was it from the jump or did it take a really long time? I think that everybody there was very supportive. It's a very supportive environment. I actually remember when I think Eric became a Buddhist and it and it made a switch right there. You know, it went from like uh, Chris, who's the longtime kind of like chef of the restaurant, used to call everybody a jack job. And I remember one time he like Eric came in and was like, "You're not allowed to call people jack jobs anymore," um, and that was like, you know, to my chagrin because I was like my nick nickname. Um, the end of the plates yeah. throwing era. Sort no, of. it was never. It was always a very, I think, very positive environment. But mm-hmm. but that really was a major shift. And because it lived, that restaurant lived through the era of you know chefs changing from being kind of like these crazy maniacal screaming maniacs to 
being, you know, supportive environments where blah, blah, blah. So the, the, that was amazing. I think that, I don't know, some of the folks in the restaurant, I got a ton of respect from and they were really kind to me and they saw me as somebody that was like, you know, exciting and others were like maybe a little jealous. Other people were angry at me. I mean, Eric was, I wasn't like a great, I didn't have a great attitude. It's a really, it's not, I wasn't really like a great person. I don't, I think I was a good person, but I didn't have a great attitude. And that really... What do you mean by that? Like, were you lazy? Were you combative? What's I was not combative. A great I was really combative. Because you were a New York teenager and you were yeah. had seen it all? or Yeah, I thought I was better than everybody. And I kind of only wanted one boss. So, like, if you were the chef, you I had nothing. Like, I would just do anything you said without even a question of a doubt. But if you were, like, the sous chef, you know, if you were great and good and I respected you, then I did what you wanted. And if you weren't, then I was really like, wouldn't listen to you. But I was so deferential to the chef that, you know, he might not see me being rude to the sous chef. Mm -hmm. And so then it created like, I definitely put a couple of people in therapy for sure. So you created kind of a weird hostile hierarchy environment, like for yourself kind of. For myself and for everybody else. And it haunted me and it still haunts me today because I haven't really figured out how to navigate the like political system. Of a kitchen, you mean? Of a kitchen, of any of any kind of like, I'm kind of, I guess I'm like severely introverted, and it makes it difficult for me to deal with more than one person at a time. I guess that's, we'll get to you having six and then now seven restaurants and how that affects that in a, in a little while. Uh, I want to know about CIA. Uh, why do you make the decision to go to culinary school? You already had years of experience at, at a high-end restaurant. You had uh, a wonderful chef who is becoming a great kind of teacher mentor to you and a lot of people that you could lean on for that experience. I'm sure you could have gotten a job at another restaurant anywhere based off La Bernadette. Why go to culinary school? Um, so Eric, basically when you're 16 or 15 or 14 years old, you have a lot of opinions, strong opinions, but the reality is that you really don't know what you're doing. And it's pretty apparent to you that you don't know what you're doing, even if your outward, like external, you know, attitude is different than that. And so I was basically like lost just listening to Eric, what he said. And he was a very, you know, strong mentor leader who basically said like, follow me, do what I say, and I'll make you the chef of a restaurant. You know, you'll do this for 10 years, and then I'll put you in a restaurant as the chef. So he said, go to the CIA. You know, he said, you should go to the Culinary Institute because there are, you know, you haven't learned any of the fundamentals. So, you know, you know how to make like lobster foie gras cappuccino foam, but you can't make trout grenoblois, and you need to learn how to make that. Um, because that's fundamental to meatballs as well. I do a lot of meatball grenoblois. Um, actually, in real life, though, breadcrumbs and lemon is delicious still with butter, right? No capers, anybody? So, anybody? So, when you're in culinary school, you are amongst your peers, but mm. they're not really your peers at so that terrible. point. So, Age-wise, you're in the same kind of room as them, but from the mindset, you said that you're kind of combative. So embarrassing. You're, you're, you're not really following the rules. How do you function in that? I got kicked out. You okay? Yeah, there you that's go. How that happened. Um, <laughs> I got well. I didn't. I get suspended um, for what and, uh, why, and why? 
the the story is um the real the real story is that I was working at the computer lab and I was just so such a terrible student and uh, uh not student but such a terrible employee of the computer lab I was doing it for like I got a culinary scholarship from the James Beard Foundation which was so amazing and allowed me to go because we didn't have a lot of cash but the I still had to do like a work for you know whatever program and I worked in the computer lab. I was computer illiterate. I mean, people would literally come up to me and say stuff like, how do you underline, you know? And I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. The computer's broken today. Underline function isn't working. <laughs> um, but like tomorrow, you know, we're going to get that fixed right away. We've got a team of, team working on it. And so it just didn't work out for me at the computer lab. There's a deeper story that I'm that I'm going to just not tell you because I can't. Sure. It's embarrassing. Okay. I, everything's so embarrassing about my life. It's it's really a tough. So you did something bad or stupid I did something that you didn't stupid. want to share. And then you know you, what they say the cover there? up is often worse than the lie itself. Interesting. Yeah. Well, 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 I'm now compounding that. We'll we'll let you hold on to this <laughs> shame that you experienced many years ago. We'll let you wallow in it for the rest of the episode. But so you finish culinary school. You- I never finished culinary school, so I, 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 I attended. It never mm-hmm. says I graduated on any of the materials. <laughs> <laughs> before we, before you move out west, I just want to ask a, another question about Eric Repair. I, I haven't ever been in the presence of that caliber of chef in a kitchen before. I think many listeners also have only seen people like Eric Repair on a TV show. Being in that kitchen, being up close, from just like a fundamentals perspective like technically speaking what is it like to watch him work and lead the kitchen and like even watching knife work is that sort of a spectacular thing to see eric repair make a sauce or you know do fish butchering something like that i i mean obviously from a technical skills perspective the man is has you know has 50 years of working every he's like apparently he's 70 years old sorry (laughs) sorry bud um the re- the reality of it is that there's this it's a little bit i want to say like disillusioning it's the the entire every single one of these chefs they get where they are and they are where they are because of an extraordinarily extraordinary work ethic and level of dedication the reason that le bernardin is a restaurant that is excellent is because he's there every day you know every single day like you go to Danielle, and Danielle's in the kitchen every single day. Even though he manages to be out on the town and have all these other places, like at his restaurant, he's there every day. And he stands at the pass, and he you know, sticks his finger in every single plate of sauce and tastes it and checks the temperature of every single piece of fish that goes out of the kitchen with a little cake tester. I mean, he's physically dedicated, and so it's this incredible level of um of of uh what's I'm, I'm 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 losing the word but it's something that i definitely don't have and it's something that when i recognized that it was really like it was very difficult for me to kind of it's like a, it's that. like a singular pursuit of perfection right yeah. like that that location is their world to everything them. uh i i want to I want to move west with you and wondering, you know, you spent your entire life in New York school, you're cooking here. 
do you is it a running running away or are you just trying to expand your scope and you want to see what else is out there? Why I, why I was venture like west? Desperate to move out of New York. I wanted to go to New Orleans really badly, mm-hmm. um, but I wanted to go out of, move out of New York. I I loved the idea of just getting away and just getting a fresh start. I think I have continually imagine this world where you can just like start again and it's a true thing you can always no matter how badly you screw something up you can always just kind of start again i mean and reinvent and just go for it which is so nice to know um although with social media it becomes more difficult there are a few things you don't want to get landed up in like jail or instagram or you know some of the worst diseases you can't um, really truly disappear anymore no. but yeah i guess in yeah. early 2000s you you could go off the grid you could more you, you know could. uh no i was working i i i got this book eric was brought he was his visa was sponsored by this guy named jean-louis paladin who's this amazing chef who is kind of lesser known today because he passed away in the i guess in the early 2000s um but he was like the grandfather of french cuisine in america in a way that was interesting he sponsored the visa of many of the kind of like four-star french chefs that we know of today and had them come and work in his kind of restaurant in the watergate hotel in washington dc he also um wrote a cookbook that was like a hundred years ahead of its time um and absolutely amazing and you know I was like obsessed with this legendary guy. He also had this incredible deep, like two packs of Marlboro Red a day voice. And he was a legendary maniac, screamer, incredible, like the most violent and hysterical. Um, and he was so well respected. And basically he also, he also was like, he drove the, the trend towards French chefs using American local ingredients. Because before that it was like, canned you know asparagus from germany why the asparagus is the best and then it was like no we have these incredible ingredients here let's like celebrate them and he was foraging and he taught um uh you know he started like so many of the things that we know about today like day boat scallops or um you know or you know the whatever these like you know fresh ingredients that we think of or take it take for granted today he actually taught the foragers how to get them and started their whole businesses really cool and uh so when you end up in San Francisco, you have uh, like quite a bit of success there, right? Like you're working at a lot of restaurants and you become the the chef. And how, how does that feel? You're a young guy and you're kind yeah, it of... It was like a little different than that. It was different. Okay. It so... was just different. Like I worked at... So I worked for this guy in Vegas and mm-hmm. and I got fired from that job. And then I went to to San Francisco. I called Eric and he got me a job out in San Francisco. Um and for working for um, uh, uh, Laurent Manrique, who's an amazing chef also, and, and really I learned so much from him. And, and um, that was the one job I didn't get fired from, actually, Laurent Manrique. I still have a good relationship with him. Could you just like knock it out of your own way? Why were you getting fri- fired? You know? Because I had such a terrible attitude. I just had such a terrible attitude. Like I really thought I was better than everybody else. And it was terrible. And it was just, I just made no friends. I had a really, really hard time with that. I don't know why I was such a dick. Do you, do you now look back at that and think uh, that you needed to act that way to get where you are? Or would you, did you wish that you went a totally different route? Oh, man, I wish I went a totally different route. Be, be, you are successful despite your flaws. Everybody that uh, has a bad attitude and, and thinks that they're 
holier than thou, they all, we all share this opinion, which is like, you know, if I hadn't been a asshole and gotten fired, I would have been stuck in that job and I would have been a sous chef and I wouldn't, you know, because I got fired from every job, I was able to have 15 four-star restaurant jobs. And that, and it's like, actually, dude, no, like you're successful despite your flaws. It means that you have great qualities that hopefully people see through just like everybody does. And as soon as you're willing to drop the attitude and humble yourself and realize that, you know, <laughs> certainly a restaurant does not work with one human being, you know, and maybe Masa does it. <laughs> so, so what moment really does humble you, though? I mean, you keep saying, you not know, humble, I, beaten down. I used to keep saying I was badly behaved. You know, I couldn't work with others. But now you you have to, you know, you yeah. employ over a hundred people. You are a leader of a business. You have to be, you know, responsible to a certain degree. Where's the turning point where you go from, I'm a dick and I get fired from a lot of jobs to, all right, I have to step up now and make a change in my life in order to achieve probably personal happiness and also personal success. Yeah. I think that that, that comes from, um, certain, first of all, I'm still struggling with this idea of, of what it means to really respect people and work with people. And it, there's a dream that as you grow through the ranks of restaurant and then become the chef, everybody will have to listen to you and then you don't have to be a, but that's just complete fallacy because as soon as you become the real and true boss of something, then all of a sudden it's like you're beholden to everybody and everybody becomes your boss because you need these people in a way that you never recognize. Like I always thought that, you know, I needed my boss. I didn't realize how much the boss needs you. And today more than ever, right? With the, with the staffing crisis, quote unquote crisis, <laughs> the issues that we have difficulty wise with staffing. Um, and so, you know, I think that just having a restaurant for the first time where truly it was 100%, I felt the responsibility to the investors, to the guests, to my family, to myself, you know, to our employees, that that was a really sobering experience. Like, you know, the meatball shop, when it opened up, it wasn't La Bernadette. It was nothing. It was just some restaurant that served meatballs that no one had heard of. And it wasn't like we could hire, you know, chefs that were lined up to come and learn the art of meatball making. It was like we had to put a Craigslist ad up for, you know, dishwashers and and then treat them well or they walked out because we were paying minimum wage or whatever that was. And you could get an easier job down the block. So that's just humbling. Like when you're standing there by yourself on the line trying to cook for everybody and your service is going down because your food isn't coming out of the kitchen on time because you decided to be right instead of, you know, like <laughs> instead of keep your employee, well, then, you know, you learn the hard way. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to really dive into moving back to New York and talking more about building the meatball shop uh, with Michael. Stick with us here on the line on Heritage Radio. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. 
From papayas and samosas to reishi mushrooms, if it's something that sounds delicious, chances are you'll find the freshest, best version of it at Whole Foods Market. They have more than 400 stores across the country, so if you consider pizza its own food group or just can't imagine when avocado toast wasn't a thing, Whole Foods Market has you covered. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com to find a store near you. Whole Foods Market. Whatever makes you whole. Welcome back to The Line here on Heritage Radio. I'm your host, Eli Sussman. Today, I'm joined by Chef Daniel Holzman. He is the co-founder of The Meatball Shop. They have six locations across New York with the seventh on the way. Uh, Back in 2010, when you were, 2009, when you were looking to start The Meatball Shop, you partnered up with your high school delivery buddy, Michael. I don't exactly know about his background. We know that you're coming from the culinary side of things, but you're formulating a plan to open up a restaurant. Was it always the meatball shop from your initial discussions? And when you start to put together a business plan, how professional of a process that is? Are you, did you slap a couple PDFs together and then go to your family and friends and say, we need 400 grand, you know, uh, how did that process kind of, uh, coagulate between the two of you to, to make the, uh, restaurant open? Such a good question. First of all, you're like spot on. It was $410,000. Well, I do a little bit of homework before this. So, (laughs) um, we, um, my partner, Michael was my best friend from high school. He was a front of the house guy and he's an amazing front of the house guy. He's the kind of person that, that, if he sees you once, he'll remember your name forever and just has this level of like innate hospitality that exists within him that make people want to hang out with him, which is what you need in that front of the house guy. Cause you want, you know, like I'm like, stay out of my kitchen and he's like, welcome to my restaurant. You know, that's what you want. And he, um, he had wanted to open a restaurant and I wasn't so keen to open a restaurant, um, with him because he was in New York. I was in California. I didn't want to move back to New York because I wanted to work in, you know, a different type of restaurant, whatever it was. And he had been talking to me for years about it. And finally, I came back to New York to open a restaurant with him, not the meatball shop. We actually had to, like, fight through, work through what type of place we would wanted. And the meatball shop became what it was because it was this balance of what he wanted and what I wanted. He wanted, like, a Cal Pep, you know, chef-driven, counter-only, no... Uh, Cal Pep's a restaurant in Barcelona in the, in the kind of like bookery that's like amazing, well-known, but there's no menu. The chef just kind of feeds you. It's incredible. Very delicious, but, you know, chef-driven. And I was like, wow, man, I watch these guys like like Eric that even if you're a four-star chef at the really, like, what is he, 1%, the top 1.1.01% of chefs, even if you gain that level of success, you're then stuck behind the kit and behind the stove. And if you leave your restaurant suffers. And so I was like, do I have that level of dedication to want to do that? So I wanted to open something. And then I was also like inspired by the slow food kind of organizations kind of goal to, you know, why, why does, why does cheap food have to be poor quality or in, you know, why does, why, why does good food have to be expensive? Why can't a restaurant be both a fun place to work and also have a place that had, you know, food you were proud of making? Um, 
all of these kind of things that didn't exist in the restaurant or that I hadn't found in restaurants that I think a lot of chefs at the time were like excited about exploring, right? Like, you know, David, I, I saw David Chang open um, uh, Mama Fuko and it was like, wow, there's this dude that is making this amazing food in this really cool laid back fun environment. I guess Danny Meyer started it with, with like dining at the bar at um, maybe TGI Friday started it with dining at the bar. <laughs> Danny Myers was inspired. At Gramercy. To, no, TGI Fridays did it right yeah, first. Probably. And then, and then Danny Meyer did it dining at the bar. He like was, I guess he, he took that and elevated it. And then David Chang was like, we're going to do that with hip hop and, and, and spray paint on the walls. And you're like, holy shit, this is so cool. You can have an amazing restaurant that people want to blah, blah, blah. So, we balanced those two things together, and originally the meatball shop was going to be a was going to be more of a fancy restaurant. And we were having a hard time finding a location. And we're sitting in Whole Foods upstairs on I think on Houston Street in the upstairs kind of like private area. We took very clean bathrooms there, by the way. If you're on Houston, you need to use the restroom. Some um, homeless people also have discovered that, so they're clean, but. There's a there's a mixed clientele. Um, the um, uh, we're we're sitting up there, and Michael was like, you know, we had been talking about doing meatballs late night, and he was like, why don't we just do the meatball thing? And I was like, so you know, Michael Chernow, I admit, you sir had the idea. <laughs> you know, that's greatly greatly disputed, often. Who, who really, whose idea who was, forced the other one to serve meatballs? Like when I was 15 years old, I was eating my meatballs, man. I had a meatball hero when I was 11. I was first. Uh, so you have this French sort of, it's a fine dining background for all intents and purposes. You know, that's really sort of the world that you're coming from. And your menu has check boxes on it and it's uh it's it's fun but it's also very kind of light it's very loose uh did you feel like you were kind of getting dragged into like once you decided on meatballs did the format scare you that you it got more and more casual and that it was sort of looser and looser i mean you are almost i mean you're a sit-down restaurant but the menu kind of leads itself to be almost like an order at the counter type of thing but it has that sushi element as well where you kind of fill in what you want but very very casual was that exciting and freeing to you as a chef or was it kind of terrifying it was um exciting and fun because when you have a mix and match menu where people can choose their own adventure and decide how they want to build their own meal you have to you know, we have like 125 permutations of regular foodstuffs that you can put together, maybe more at this point, and it all has to work together. So, you know, every time you're, you know, when we think about the meatball shop menu, it's like we only use seasonal ingredients and they have to work with whatever side we're putting out has to work with these other, you know, whatever they are, 25 different options. And... On top of that, they have to stand alone and be delicious. However, if you you know put a, a, a bunch of meatballs and sauce and another side together with them, they can't be like a circus plate of overpowering and weird. And so it creates this really interesting conundrum, conundrum, difficult question to try and you know like solve, which is exciting and, and fun. And then it was really Michael that recognized from being a bartender for years, like New Yorkers 
were coming in and saying, where's the best pizza? Where's the best French fries? Where's the best shawarma? Where's the best, the best, the best? And he was like, you know, we could be the best meatball hero. We can be the best meatball. You know, that's something that people can get behind and can recognize. It's, you know, you, that's an elevator pitch. Well, what about that elevator pitch? You raised $410,000. How difficult was that to do? Uh, did you have the money quickly or were you really sort of scraping at every single stranger and distant relative in order to scrap those dollars together to make the project happen? We wrote a business plan for the original restaurant before Meatball Shop. It took us three months and it was a struggle. We put the Meatball Shop business plan together in like, in like, it was like three days. And every single person we talked to other than one man said yes as soon as we asked them and they read the plan. It was the easiest, weird, it was so strangely easy. A lot of people were Michael's, you know, long-term customers who just believed in him, you know, but the reality is that it was people just recognized it and did it. You open and it's successful. And then after basically a year, even less than that, you start signing leases, right? You sign two more leases in the first year. And you had been in restaurants a long time. Michael's been in bars a long time. You must have known the inherent risk of doing that. Why did you do that? Was there pressure from investors to do that? Pressure on yourself? It was like... I don't know. I guess I just have this feeling like my friend Roy, actually Roy Choi, he's an amazing chef out in Los Angeles. I've been, I went to culinary school with him, so I've known him for like 20 years. He's got Chago and, um, and Pod and a lot of great places. He was like yeah. the godfather of the food truck or whatever. Um, he, we used to play poker a lot together. We, 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 um, <clears throat> we used to play poker a lot together. And he would impress me because, you know, when he gambles, at the end of the night, he puts it all on the line. And he's like, either I'm going to go home losing the 20 bucks I put in in the beginning, or I'm going to go home with way more than I ever expected. And that, that like, for me, when, when I was always so scared to try and do anything because I never wanted to lose anything that I had. And he was so free that he would win. Way, you know, like, you know, no one remembers when they lost that 20 bucks. But everybody remembers when they like doubled their you know fortune or whatever, and so that really impressed me. And and the meatball shop for me was like we don't want to just have one meatball shop. We want to have a we want to have an empire of meatball shops. It could be amazing. We want to change the world. Um, we want to treat. We want to we want to create a model for restaurants that's better than other places have been in the past for. On every level, you know, the amount of money we pay our investors, the amount, the way we treat our employees, the way, every, every aspect of it. And I'm a big believer in the democratic, you know, capitalist, you vote with your dollars, not at the ballot box. Like, go to the ballot box. We all know what difference that makes. Zero. God bless America. Um, But we really do make a difference with the dollars we vote with every single day. Every dollar that you spend goes to somebody that, you are believing in hopefully and that experience for me was like the bigger the meatball shop becomes the more we can do and if i'm scared to lose one we'll never get anywhere so we should just double down so you do double down 
You yeah. you go big. You go after this multi-unit expansion plan. Uh, it doesn't work out at first the way that you want. There is a couple years where uh, there's a dip. They begin to actually all kind of underperform based on your expectations. And I know that you've talked about this before, but I was hoping that you could speak in from a restaurateur business person standpoint about what that means from an underperforming perspective. Like, are you losing money? Are customer complaints going up? Like, what are the metrics that you and Michael and perhaps your investment investors use to kind of quantify that things were going off the rails? Because what's really fascinating to me about this is that you you realized it, you assessed it, and you changed your course. What did you see happening, and then how did you kind of course correct it, and how long did that take? I think we saw it. Um, it was. I think it mean it, it was internal that you know it was kind of only internally. Maybe even our investors didn't notice it. Um, when you work in a restaurant every day, you can tell how you know how it's going well before the numbers are you know represent that, and you can tell what's going on well before you see the effects. You know, it takes a long time for it to kind of filter through to Yelp or even. <clears throat> And start to change scores, whatever that means. So I think the metrics for me were, um, first and foremost, our sa- the sales. When you open a second restaurant, you kind of just expect that it'll be a mirror of the first restaurant times the number of seats you have. That's just a complete fallacy. You know, The number of your sales are, and how many customers are going to come in is a complicated kind of like... Uh, 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 equation to crack and it has to do with what you know the neighborhood and so so many other factors right i mean that's like the holy grail of the restaurant expansion when it comes to chain restaurants is how many square feet how big should i make it based on how many you know people are going to come in because if you make it too big you know you have a staff that's too expensive and can't support and if you make it too small then you're leaving money on the table um so I think that in general, just not knowing how to run, re- like neither Michael nor I had ever worked in a chain restaurant, first of all, right? N- not, not, I had kind of held my nose up against these restaurants as, you know, been snooty about it. And it was a real, that was a real flaw because, you know, obviously you can learn so much. I mean, we, I looked at McDonald's and I was like, oh, this McDonald's, you know, it's like I looked down on the quality or, or whatever. But when you think about the reality of what they've accomplished, whether you agree fundamentally with their like, you know, whatever, it's amazing what what that what they've accomplished, right? Yeah, the the vertical integration yeah. and the sourcing and logistics yeah. are kind of maddening. Like Hitler would be a good example. <laughs> that would be a good example. Like you could you could say like I don't agree with what he did. But he did a really good job of it for a while there, and so fundamentally, you could learn if you studied his technique. Right? I, I imagine you left that out of the business plan when you for your expansion <laughs> business <did>. plan. <laughs> Look at our efficiency. <laughs> um, so, but, but in truth, though, as you expand and you go from I'm a singular chef who stands behind the oven, or I'm at the pass, and you kind of have to evolve into. Oh, we need a director of operations. Uh, we need a centralized HR system. Oh, are we going to have a commissary or are we going to produce everything independently at each restaurant? So 
I'm going to ask those questions mm-hmm. now. Do you use a commissary? What was it like <laughs> when you brought on a director of operations? Because I saw your structure on your website. It's it's pretty corporate. You know, yeah. you have a chef at most locations who's the chef there. How do you now oversee things from the top? And what does that feel like to kind of – I mean, you're not really like the chef on the line yeah. anymore. You have sick – you probably don't even go to every restaurant every day. That seems impossible. So how has that changed once you – the structure yeah. changed. You know, it's um, when you when you I read this book called The E Myth Revisited. It's like a great book for someone starting a business because it really speaks to you know this idea that you have to pick a job for yourself and that job should be what's best for the business and not necessarily what you want to do or com- are comfortable doing. And as your restaurant and business grows, your job evolves constantly. You know, I haven't had the same job for, you know, two months running since we started the business. It just is constantly changing, right? Some days I'm the plumber. I'm like a really good plumber, by the way. Very good plumber. Lucky. And you I think save I a could, lot of money that way. I feel like I could revolutionize the whole plumbing industry. <laughs> um, so I forgot the question. <laughs> um, the, 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 the shift from being the chef of one restaurant, you know, was something that probably when I look back on seemed really obvious and easy. And probably at the time I never let go and I probably still haven't let go. Um, there are amazing executives who really understand what it means to trust people. And the, the truth is that, you know, you can't manage six restaurants. You really can't manage more than three restaurants. One person can't really manage more than three restaurants, you know, like cowboying it. You need to really at some point trust somebody. Where the whole thing falls apart is the first time that somebody other than you starts to hire people. Michael hired every single manager and every single employee for the first three restaurants, you know, or he was part of the interview process. As soon as you can no longer do that, all of a sudden you start this like cultural game of telephone where the entire system breaks down because you need to then quantify, identify and quantify the core values of your business. And this is where that like corporate structure comes into play because I always thought that like red tape and corporations and like all this stuff were bad words, but the truth of the matter is that if you employ the corporate technique to drive the results that you believe in without without losing your core values which you know of integrity and whatever matter to you as a business then you can drive the the success that you've created without losing any of that the truth is you lose the culture if you don't create those corporate the corporate structure because the corporate structure is what allows you to kind of proliferate without losing your culture which is everything right and that's just the truth Every single business that is successful that's bigger than a group of one person is built on communication, period, done, every, that's all there is, is communication. And so, you know, you stick your nose up and you say meetings, 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 but your whole thing is meetings. It's meetings and communication that allows us to grow with and remain one. So <clears throat> that idea for me of, of, um, of, of corporate structure, which is something that I fought against. And the reason that we faltered and had a hard time is because I fought against that so passionately and I really didn't want to have to do that until I finally realized like, hey man, you're making such a terrible mistake. You're, t- you're, you're 
sabotaging your organization's ability to thrive because you're dis like rules allow people to understand what they can do, not necessarily what they can't do. So if I make a really hard, fast rule that says, you know, you can only play within these boundaries, what that really does is it allows somebody to understand exactly where they can play and then they can thrive and grow and play, you know, with abandon within the, that area, if that makes sense. Wow, was that too much? Too passionate? I just got real excited. I think I'm like halfway through my coffee. That's what happens. <laughs> the, the trend that is happening a lot in the restaurant industry from a expansion standpoint is you establish your brand, you maybe open up three, four, five locations, and then the VC folks come, the venture capital folks come knocking, and they say, had your food, love it. See the room, love the vibe. You guys know what you're doing. We're interested in blasting off a hundred of these and having you be in Minnesota and Iowa and all over the place. Have those people come knocking yet? And uh, have you decided to go down that path of large expansion? If yes, please talk about it. And if not, um, what are your and Michael's goals for for further expansion of Meatball Shop? So we've talked to venture capitalists, different finance folks from the beginning. Obviously, money is an extremely important factor. If you want to, any business, the 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 cash of a business is is everything, right? If your business is, it's your blood. Cash is blood. And so just like a human being, if you go low on blood, it starts, you start to have a hard time functioning. If you're low on cash, you have a hard time functioning. If you run out of cash, you're dead, done. Um, and all of a sudden you need an infusion. And if you, you know, your infusion becomes more expensive, the more you need it, just like anything else, right? Cash is the commodity, um, that drives the, that drives the life of your business. Um, and so throughout our time, it's been that balance of questioning where are we going to get our cash from to grow? We've been really lucky because our sales and our business model support us being able to take loans from the bank, which has allowed us to kind of grow internally. We also have had a couple of investors from the first kind of group of people that, that invested friends and family from the first restaurant that, you know, have supported and wanted to invest more. So we've been able to maintain kind of an, this kind of insular investment structure that has has allowed us to maintain control of the business to some extent. At the same time, you know, I don't know. I don't know that, I guess we want to have 100 meatball shops. I don't know that I want to run 100 meatball shops. I know that I do not want to run 100 meatball shops. Like, it's fascinating to learn how to open five and six restaurants. I imagine it'll be extraordinary to be on the ride of watching us grow to 25 restaurants. We hired a CEO, Adam Rosenbaum, who's amazing. Um, and that's his passion. And he has the dedication and drive to want to kind of like do that. So really, he's the guy that's making the, he's the guy that's going to take us from six to 
25 with his experience. And where's his background? Where did he come from? He was he was a restaurant guy in in New York City. You know, he worked for um, uh, some of the kind of finer dining, fancier restaurants. And then he, through Patina Group, kind of grew and learned the corporate side of things. Um, and he also worked in boutique fitness and, and grew Flywheel for many years as for, uh, for, and, and helped them to expand. So, you know, he had he had a really perfect balance of understanding what it means to be a from scratch, individually run restaurant that's based on quality and customer service, while also recognizing the necessity for what we talked about earlier, the corporate structure and the, you know, core value and et cetera. So, you know, that's the evolutionary change of right now, I guess my, my job, Michael's job goes from Doing a day-to-day job of running things, all of a sudden recognizing there's somebody better either below or above you to do that same job, right? So Adam is my boss. You know, we, we, he, I work at his behest. You and Michael have known each other for 15, 20, 25 plus years now, something like that. And yeah. you have started off as friends and for the a long time now you've your lives have been very intertwined as business partners how difficult has that been to be a business partner with someone that you know so closely uh advice suggestions for people that are looking to start their own thing and are looking for a business partner they they don't want to go it alone what do you tell them about when they're looking for the person that they should partner up with i think that having a friend First of all, there's this fallacy that being friends with somebody is is a terrible choice for being business. However, what I would say is you have to understand what that friendship is based in. Is it based in the mutual respect of somebody's working ability or is it based on the fact that you enjoy... Like, <clears throat> Michael and I were friends because we were best friends. So we enjoyed, like, vacationing together and we saw the best of each other and we were in the best mood when we were together. And so when you work with somebody, that's a different, you know, you have a, it's a, under different circumstance, under different pressures. And we were unprepared for that because we hadn't worked with each other before. So I would suggest that friendships that are born of business um, make easier business partners than business partnerships that are born of friendships. Um, certainly there's more gambling involved in the latter. And so for Michael and I, there were times of great, great, great difficulty. Because when I say to a business person that I'm working with that I think your idea is bad, in hopefully in a nicer way, you have a shitty idea, you're a shitty person, you're shitty ideas, um, you are like, wow, that guy's a dick, but we're business partners and he's telling me my idea is bad. When I say that to my best friend, all of a sudden it's like, you know, hurts your feelings. And when you put that kind of like intangible, you hurt my feelings into it, it becomes complicated. And the worst thing for a business is to not be honest and, 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 and let somebody know like, Hey, this is a bad idea. The, the only other problem with that is like, no one thinks their idea is bad. And frankly, you might be wrong. It might be a good idea, even though you think it's a bad idea. And so that becomes a really difficult balance when you're when you're friends with somebody. And our friendship um, has over you know over time evolved, just like the, our business relationship. You know, not either one of us being the boss right now and having this CEO that really changes everything because all of a sudden we can both 
support passionately and understand our roles are not in any way, you know, we're not competing with each other. And did I read that you actually brought in someone outside to kind of help you work through a lot of those issues? We did. We got, we had, we went to all kinds of psychiatrists. It was great. We went to couples therapists, which was not, there are business therapists. They're not called therapists. I forget what they call them. But they're basically business, you know, uh, they're like coaches, or business something, coaches right? yeah. that are better. The when we went to a, you know, couples therapist, basically, which was funny and we thought it was good. You know, they really work on the relationship and the communication. And for us, that dragged up a lot of difficulty, whereas business coaches really talk about respecting one another and the structure. Because the truth of the matter is that Michael is great at what he does, and I'm hopefully great at what I do. And we both have an opinion, and we're both good at each other's jobs. Michael's a really good cook, and I can be a good bartender and a good you know front-of-the-house guy if I put my mind to it. But that's not what I'm great at. So even though the other person, I might have a, I might be better in a moment at something that he might be great at doing, Allowing the other person to make a mistake and having the boundaries to say, this person is learning through their mistakes and it's not going to kill the business and it will, but, but hurting your relationship will kill the business. It's like, you know, you, that it's like, you have to lose the battle, lose the battle to win the war kind of thing. Sometimes you came in this morning, uh, with your, like, uh, on, on your shoulder, you always have a camera with you I do. for, for all your life. You've loved photography. Uh, what is it about photography that really speaks to you? And uh, what what does that have anything to do, if it does, with your culinary passions? Camera is one of the greatest ways to hide that I that exists. Um, as a person who's generally introverted in a extroverted world, like you know, in a restaurant where you're constantly having to talk to people, you can hide behind the camera. And the best thing about a camera is that when you put it to your eye, it makes the other person feel more uncomfortable than you. And so it immediately ends a conversation and they want to get away. So you carry your camera with you if you're introverted, but you have to, you know, navigate an extrovert's world. That was me putting down my coffee. Daniel, thanks so much for joining us today and, and telling us about uh, building your business and uh, expanding and all the headaches and heartache that can that can come with it. Uh, hoping that the seventh location that's opening up soon is a success. Washington, D.C. Wow. We're bringing balls to the wall. No, that was when we were going to open in Wall Street. Balls to the... What's it called? Mall. <laughs> Balls to the mall. The, the Washington Mall. Not the, you know, Mall of America. It's but going to be in the first level of the Washington Monument on the... <laughs> it's go Oh, that would be so great. No, we are... Um, we're opening on 14th Street. And 14th Street is such a great corridor. I don't know if you're... Are you, do you spend time in D.C.? Sure, I know D.C. a little DC's bit. D.C. is just such a great city. They're like... I, I hadn't spent time there since I was a little kid, but... Outside of the Monument Alley, D.C. is this amazing, vibrant community of, like, incredible restaurants and, you know, art and, I don't know, it's really cool. I had a great time. Huge college scene down there. There are, like, white people rowing in the river. You know you know how they do that? <laughs> yeah. They go there's, rowing. There's a lot of stuff going that on still in happens. Washington, D.C. <laughs> uh, cool. Well, first location outside of New York. And... Uh, 
maybe many more to come. Hopefully, we'll have you back on the show when you hit your 25th location, and we'll talk about how you got from six in New York to that level. Uh, you can find uh, meatball shops pretty much everywhere in New York. They cover a large swath of the city, and uh, and they're open seven days a week. So go check them out uh, if you're uh, in lower, upper, or midtown Manhattan. Uh, Daniel, thanks again. Join us every Tuesday for a new episode of The Line with a new chef or restaurateur telling us about their story. Uh, Join us next week, 11 a.m., Heritage Radio. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Ever wonder what kind of podcast Julia Child would have made? Probably would have been one where she introduced you to all of her latest discoveries and favorite people. And that's exactly the tradition we're following on Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. Join me, Todd Shulkin, your host, and the Foundation's Executive Director, as I bring you inside the Foundation's world to meet the bright lights of today's food universe, just as Julia used to do from her own famous kitchen. New episodes air on Heritage Radio Network, Wednesdays at noon Eastern. Listen in.